Apprentice Luck by Sean Flynn Carl Spielbrunner had been apprenticed to Otto von Stumpf for six months now, more than long enough for him to realise how much he hated the antiquarian book trade. Carl had a fatal combination of vanity, ambition and intelligence and he knew well enough that, unless his luck changed, all he had to look forward to was ending up with his own pokey little shop, as bent and crabbily reclusive as von Stumpf. Of course, there were far worse fates in Middenheim, the great and terrible city of the White Wolf. If Karl's dead father, the only family Karl had, apart from some country cousins he had never seen, had not been a drinking companion of von Stumpf's, no doubt Karl would be just another orphan trying to scratch a living on the streets now, a likely victim for drug pushers, racketeers, pimps and cultists. Far worse fates, yes, but not by much, Karl thought as he stood at the dusty window and watched the shabby, narrow street and the occasional passer-by. It was summer, and stiflingly hot in the shop. A fat blue bottle buzzed in one corner of the window. The husks of others were scattered on the leather-bound tomes which leaned against each other in the window. There was so much going on in the world, and Karl was stuck here, in charge of a lot of tattered, dusty books. A wizard had moved in to some rooms down the street, for instance. A tall, mysterious foreigner. Some said he was a necromancer. Everyone said he was up to no good. And something was rumoured to be stirring in the myriad tunnels that undercut the rock on which the city was founded. The watch was on maximum alert, and only last night the body of a goat-headed man had been found near one of the main sewer inlets. For a moment, Carl saw himself at the head of one of the elite patrols, a grim-faced watch-captain armed with a glittering sword, maybe a decorative scar on one cheek. Then the blue bottle buzzed loudly at the dusty window, and Carl's daydream collapsed, stillborn. Musty smell of crumpling paper, shadowy ranks of outdated books looming into shadow. This was his fate. His only consolation was that, as usual, his master was away at the Wolf's Grip, the grim little tavern which drained most of the shop's profits. Otherwise Carl would certainly have been put to some useless task or other, re-cataloguing stock or sweeping away the sticky cobwebs which festooned the crumbling plaster of the low ceiling, and no doubt von Stumpf would be giving him a lecture in that nagging, whiny voice of his, telling Carl how lucky he was to be an apprentice to the venerable firm of von Stumpf and Son. Carl didn't know what had happened to the son, but he guessed that he had run away as soon as he could. And if von Stumpf had been there, Carl wouldn't have been able to take his chance when his luck suddenly changed. It arrived in the unlikely form of Scabby Elsa, a bent, hook-nosed old crone who specialised in reselling rags stripped from the corpses thrown from the cliff of size. 
Just as Carl was settling to a forbidden snack of black bread and cheese, she pushed open the door and hobbled laboriously over the uneven floor with something clutched to her shapeless bosom. The blue bottle left off bumbling at the window and spiralled around the greasy shawl wrapped over her head, attracted by the sour, rank stench of her layers of rotting rags. "'A little something for you, young master,' Scabby Elsa said, and set what she had been carrying on the scarred, rubbish-strewn table which served as a counter. It was an old, old book, text handwritten in an upright, clerkly style on an octavo parchment, bound in fine-grained leather with gilt stamping on the spine, the front somewhat buckled and stained. Carl took only a moment to realise it had to be valuable. Much as he hated the book trade, he had taken care to pick up the necessary knowledge and tricks. Now it looked as if that care might actually be about to pay off. "'I'll take a gold crown for this fellow,' Scabby Elsa said. Her smile revealed blackened gums, and the stench of her breath almost knocked Carl down. "'No less now, but no more either.' That's what I needs and that's what I takes. Ten shillings, Carl said quickly. The cover is damaged. No one would offer you more. It fell a long way, like its owner. Luckily it fell on someone else or it would look a lot worse. Fifteen then. Twelve. And that's my final offer. Done, Scabby Elsa said. Carl kept what little money he had managed to save tied in a corner of his shirt. He undid the knot and counted out the price. Scabby Elsa scooped up the coins with a surprising deftness and hobbled out of the shop pursued by the blue bottle, which had fallen in love with her, or at least with her smell, his heart beating quickly and lightly. Carl pulled down the window shades and locked the door. With luck, von Stumpf wouldn't be back until at least the end of the afternoon. He had plenty of time to examine his prize. The book was a grimorium, a handbook of magic, and written in old-fashioned but plain language too, not in some kind of code. From the style of binding and the yellowing of the edges of the parchment pages, it had to be at least three hundred years old. From the time of the Wizard's War, perhaps, or even before. Carl leafed through crackling pages. A spell of bafflement. A spell of binding. Hmm. He would take it to the shop of Hieronymus Neugierde, the largest antiquarian shop in the city, he was bound to get the best price there, maybe enough to escape his apprenticeship. Carl began to examine the book more closely. He would need to know as much as he could to get the right price. He realised with a start that the leather cover was not made of tanned animal hide, but human skin. He could make out the paws, even little hairs, it felt clammy to his fingertips, as if somehow still alive. He opened the book again and laid it face down, 
peered down the spine. There were often clues about a book's origin and age to be found in the binding sheets. Sure enough, there was a scrap of paper inserted there. When Carl fished it out, an insect, a shiny black beetle, came with it, scurrying across the table and falling to the floor before Carl could crush it. Some kind of map had been drawn on the scrap of paper, the ink fresh and no use in dating the book. All the same, it was interesting. A carefully marked route snaked through intricate labyrinthine passages, avoiding all sorts of traps and deadfalls and pits, to a sealed chamber marked with a single word written in red. A treasure map, maybe, although there was no indication of what the treasure was. Carl studied it for a long time before he realised that it must be a map of part of the system of tunnels which the dwarves had long ago cut through the rock on which the city stood. When he had riddled all he could, he put it in his pocket, then went into the back room where he slept and hid the book under his pillow. He would examine it further tonight and tomorrow sell it for the best price he could, and then thumb his nose at von Stumpf and live the way he wanted, not at some old fool's beck and call. He might even be able to sell the treasure map to some gullible adventurer, and there was no shortage of such people in the city, foolish enough to venture into the dangerous tunnels beneath the city. Karl was thinking of all he could do with a pocketful of gold crowns as he let up the blinds, and then he jumped back in shock. The foreign wizard was peering through the dusty glass, his face only inches away from Karl's own. When he saw Karl, he straightened up and pushed at the door, and although Karl hadn't unlocked it, the door opened at once. I am looking for a book, the wizard said. Well, we have all sorts of books. Carl's mouth was dry. The wizard was very tall and, despite the summer heat, wore a sweeping black cloak, its red lining embroidered with all manner of weird signs of power. His face was long and white, framed by untidy black hair and a black beard. A pair of small round spectacles perched on the end of his long nose. They magnified the wizard's fierce blue eyes as he peered down at Carl. A very particular book. A book that may have been brought to you. Or maybe about to be brought to you. A large, handwritten volume. With an unusual binding. I will pay very well for such a book. You would have to speak to my master, Carl managed to say. He was thinking furiously. If the wizard wanted the book, then it was even more valuable than it looked, and he would certainly get a better price at Newgirders than from this itinerant hedge wizard. Your master, eh? The wizard drew himself up. He was so tall that his head almost brushed the cobwebby rafters of the ceiling. Very well. You give no choice but that I come back. I hope your master will be more helpful. I will call again tomorrow, 
and remember this, young man. The cloak flew up and Carl jumped back, but the wizard was too quick. His cold hand fastened around Carl's wrist, pulled. Then Carl was leaning half across the table, his face only inches away from the wizard's. Remember this, the wizard said softly. I don't forget anything, Carl managed to say. He met the wizard's gaze, trying not to be intimidated. But there was an odd tingling between his eyes, as if he was about to cry. And after a moment, he had to look away. Things may be more than they seem. Or less, the wizard let go of Carl's wrist, drew his cloak around himself. Good day to you, young man, and good luck. Somehow, Carl managed to behave as if nothing out of the ordinary had happened when Otto von Stump came back in the evening, although the old man had drunk so much of the wolf grip's vinegary ale that he probably wouldn't have noticed if Carl had grown another head. After a meagre supper of boiled barley flavoured with fatty scraps of mutton, von Stumpf had Karl help him up the winding stairs to the filthy garret where he slept. Then Karl curled up on the mattress in the stockroom behind the shop and gloated over the book and the map by the light of a tallow candle. But it had been a long day, and soon enough he fell asleep. He woke with a start to moonlight falling through the room's only window, thinking someone had touched him on the hand. But it was only a beetle, clambering over the hollow of his palm, its antennae waving furiously. Carl flicked the insect away, and then realised with alarm that the book had gone. He managed to get the candle lit, and saw that the book was lying in the curtained doorway between the shop and the stockroom. Shadows seemed to scatter from it as he went over and bent to pick it up. Nervous and fully awake, Carl went into the shop and listened at the crooked stairs that led up to von Stump's garret, and grinned when he heard the old man's rasping snore. Still befuddled by sleep, Carl was about to go back to bed when he happened to glance out of the window and saw a black-cloaked figure moving past towards the door. It was the wizard. In an instant, Carl was through the back room, fumbling at the bolts of the door to the yard. He managed to get it open just as the lock of the shop's door sprang with a heart-stopping click and then he was over the wall of the yard, almost falling on top of the figure that stood in the alley below. For an instant, Carl thought that the wizard, who obviously had found out about the book, had somehow magicked himself from one side of the building to another. But then the man pushed back his hood and said, Come with me. Be quick now. Carl was about to ask who the stranger was and why he should follow him, when an eerie blue light flared on the other side of the wall. Without a further thought, he took to his heels, clutching the book to his chest. The stranger ran as though his feet were skimming an inch above the cobbles. His cloak streamed behind him, 
After dodging through the alleys, they came out on the bustling Bergenbahn, where bands of students roved noisily among crowds of ordinary citizens. By this time, Karl was panting hard, but the stranger hardly seemed to be breathing at all. His eyes glittered as he looked about alertly, one hand on the hilt of a long sword. He was a young, smooth-skinned, handsome man, wearing baggy corduroy trues and an embroidered leather vest under the cloak. Curious, old-fashioned clothes. Seemingly satisfied that they weren't being pursued, he turned and looked down at Karl, who shrank a little under that glittering, unforgiving gaze. "'You have what we came to take back,' the swordsman said. He had an odd, harshly buzzing accent, probably from some country district or other. That would explain the old-fashioned cut of his clothes, too. If you mean the book, I came by it fairly. I'm a bookseller, and, and I bought it, Carl said, more defiantly than he felt. After all, he was telling the truth, more or less the truth. We pay, the swordsman said, even though it was stolen from us. He effortlessly plucked the book from Carl's grasp, then dropped a heavy drawstring purse to the ground. Carl pulled the purse open as the swordsman paged through the book and gasped when he saw that it was crammed full of gold crowns. Then his gasp turned to a frightened squeak as the swordsman grabbed the front of his shirt and lifted him clear off the ground. The map, the swordsman said, his face inches from Carl's own. His breath was sharply acid and his eyes glittered crazily in the light of a nearby street lamp. We want the map. Put me down and I'll tell you where it is, Carl managed to gasp, and then his heels struck the pavement hard as the swordsman let him go. Carl tugged at his dishevelled shirt. Hotly aware of the group of students who had turned to snigger at this contretemps. Where? the swordsman said. Back at the shop, Carl lied, knowing it was in his pocket. He had seen an opportunity to make even more money, enough to set him up for life, maybe. A purse full of gold crowns could be spent in a night, if you were foolish enough. But if the map led to buried treasure, and there were legends of all sorts of dwarvish hordes hidden in the catacombs and corridors of the city beneath the city, then anything was possible. And although Karl was clever, he was also inexperienced enough to harbour the belief that, no matter what, he wasn't anywhere near to dying. So he added quickly, "'But we don't have to go back there and face that wizard.' He was the one who stole the book from you, wasn't he? His apprentice, the swordman admitted. We nearly caught him, but he jumped over the edge of the cliff of size. And when we got down amongst the trees and found his body, the book was gone. But now you have the book, and, fortunately for you, I am at your service. I found the map and looked at it long enough to memorise it. This was the truth. Karl 
had an exceptional memory for things that might be useful to him. He said with more confidence than he felt, I can take you past the traps, lead you to the treasure, once we are close enough. Treasure, the swordsman said. You wish to share the treasure? Let's call it a finder's fee. The swordsman closed his eyes and began to mutter to himself, or more precisely buzz and chatter in his odd dialect. Obviously he was thinking hard, and obviously thinking hard did not come easily. At last he said, We are agreed then. You help. For a fee. On your word that you will give me ten percent of what we find, and not harm me in any way, Carl said, as steadily as he could. We give our word, the swordsman said, with an alacrity that made Carl wish he had asked for fifteen or even twenty percent. He added, Now you will lead us to the nearest entrance to the sewers, where we will begin our journey. Carl smiled. It's easy to see you're a stranger to the city. The main sewer entrances are guarded by the city watch. Even a swordsman like yourself will not be able to outfight the watch. Uh, what is your name, anyhow? You may call us Argo. Well, I'm Carl. But don't worry, I know another way. Although you may have to pay a kind of admission fee. There's a tavern down in the Ostwald district, the Drowned Rat, which has a way into the sewers in its cellar. You just have to pay the landlord, that's all. You have all the money now. Do I? Oh, I see. Well, <laughs> I suppose it's a kind of investment. Come on then, Argo. The place I'm thinking of is, is on the other side of the city. Carl wasn't as confident as he had sounded. He knew about the drowned rat and its secret passages into the sewer network only by rumour, and he had made up the story about the entrance fee on the spot. As he and the swordsman made their way deeper into the narrow streets of Ostwald, what little confidence Carl had soon evaporated. There were no street lights in Ostwald, and the mean, crowded streets were illuminated only by what light fell through heavily curtained windows, or the red flames of torches a few people carried. Carl kept as close to the swordsman as he could, not an easy task, because the man strode along at a rapid pace, the darkness and the ill-favoured crowd slowing him down not at all. There were probably no more drunks here than along the Bergenbahn, but while on that prosperous street drunkenness was merely the end result of too much high spirits, here it was due to a kind of savage desperation. Men, far gone into their cups, staggered along, shouting curses at the world in general, and from more than one alley came the noises of fighting. Beggars with every kind of disfigurement and disease bawled out for arms, ignored by the poorly dressed labourers and better dressed thieves alike, their cries scarcely louder than the shrill cries of the whores, 
who shouted down at potential clients from upper-storey windows of the close-packed, timber-framed buildings. Carl looked for the sign of the drowned rat with increasing desperation. For all his pretended knowledge of the city, he had rarely been in Ostwald, and didn't like it. He wanted nothing more than to find the tavern and get into the sewers beneath these dangerous streets, forgetting for the moment how much more dangerous the sewers could be. But when at last he did spy the sign, the last of his confidence seemed to ooze from the soles of his boots. It was a tall, narrow, ramshackle building, set a little apart from its neighbours, its filthy windows glowing sullenly, its door in deep shadow. Even as Carl and Argo approached it, a man staggered out, clutching the top of his head. Blood streamed down his face, suddenly bright as he staggered through the light of a nearby lamp set in the window of a whorehouse. He turned and bawled out, Cutthroats! Lousy thieves! Sons of diseased mutant horse! Then he groaned and clutched his head again and staggered on. Argo hardly seemed to notice the man, strode through the shadows and ducked beneath the tilted lintel of the tavern. Carl had to hurry to catch him up, slipping through the door just as a couple of heavy-set thugs pushed it closed. The main room of the tavern was almost as dark as the street outside and hazed with yellow-grey smoke which gathered in thick reefs just beneath the sagging ceiling. Wolfish-looking men sat at half a dozen rough tables scattered along the walls and all were staring at the swordsman in unnerving and hostile silence. Argo crossed to the counter, his boots rattling the loose floorboards and said softly to the large bearded man behind it, We wish to enter the sewer system. We will pay whatever is necessary. One of the ruffians behind Carl chuckled and dropped a huge scarred hand on Carl's shoulder. Your friend is a bold enough fellow, laddie. I always do like him bold. The landlord spat into a glass and smeared the spit around with a grey rag. We don't like strangers coming in here, friend. On your way now. I can't help you. We'll just have a word with them, the man holding Carl said. Straighten them out, like. Whatever you want, lads, the landlord said indifferently, turning away as the second ruffian, his head brushing the ceiling, stalked towards Argo, a weighted cosh dangling from one paw. Carl started to shout a warning, but a foul-smelling hand clamped over his mouth and nose. Argo turned, his cloak flaring as the cosh swept towards his head, and then suddenly he was to one side of the man, his sword flashing through the smoke. Something hit the floor with a thump, blood pattering after. It was the ruffian's hand, still holding the cosh. The wounded ruffian shrieked, and then Argo's sword flashed again, and the ruffian fell to the floor, his throat spraying blood. The thug holding Carl started to back towards the door, ignoring the apprentice's struggles. There was a tingling pressure between Carl's eyes at the bridge of his nose, 
For some reason, he remembered the wizard's humiliating stare. And when the ruffian let go of Carl's mouth to pull at the latch, Carl managed to shout out the spell of bafflement he'd seen in the book. It was the only thing he could think of. But to his amazement, it worked. The man let go of him and scratched his head, his pig-like features twisted in confusion. He didn't seem to notice his companion, fallen on the floor in the centre of a widening pool of blood. Or Carl. Or Argo, who pushed Carl aside and ran the ruffian through with his already bloody blade, its steel scraping against ribs as he drew it out. For a moment, the man didn't seem to notice his mortal wound either. But then he gave a bubbling groan and toppled full length, his fall rattling every flagon in the room. Now the silence in the room had a different edge to it. Carl discovered that his nose was bleeding and dabbed at it with his sleeve. He pulled the dead man's knife from his belt while everyone was watching Argo. The latter stepped around the body of the ruffian who had first attacked him, kicking aside the severed hand and up to the counter. He pulled at the landlord's beard, lifting the big man half over the counter and repeating his request to be allowed into the sewers, as if nothing at all had happened. The landlord's eyes crossed in disbelief. For a moment the sound of his beard coming away at the roots was the only sound in the room. The cellar, he managed to say at last. Of course, you just follow me. The cellar was reached by a steep, winding stair, its stone steps slippery with water that dribbled down the walls. Things moved in the darkness beyond the light of the landlord's upheld lanterns. Rats, the landlord said. But the thing Carl glimpsed was twice as big as any rat he'd ever seen, and seemed to scurry away on more than four legs. Argo, indifferent to any danger as usual, followed the landlord into the darkest recess of the vaulted cellar without hesitation, past rotting casks and heaps of rubbish and broken furniture. There was a low door set deep in the wet stones of the wall, barred with iron and held shut by massive bolts, which the landlord threw back with some effort. A rush of hot, malodorous air gushed out as the landlord pulled the door open. Argo started through, and Carl said loudly, We'll need a light. He didn't want to go down there but he could hardly expect to be allowed out of the tavern alive any other way. If he was going, he wanted to be able to see. Argo turned and plucked the lantern from the landlord, then ducked under the lintel. As Carl followed, the landlord swore and slammed the door shut on their backs, yelling through the wood that they'd never get out. He'd see that they didn't. There was a rattle as he threw the bolts home, and then there was only the drip, drip, drip of water from overhead, and the faint rush of water somewhere below. A winding stair led down to one of the sewer's tributaries, a smelly brick-lined tunnel 
scarcely tall enough for Carl to stand up in, through which a stinking stream of brown liquid gurgled. In turn, this gave out onto one of the main channels, where high stone walks ran either side of a fast-running, filthy stream. Argo raised the lantern, peered at Carl. He brushed a cold finger over the drying blood on the apprentice's upper lip and put it in his mouth. The price of magic, he said after a moment. It was only a little spell, something I read in that book. I didn't even think it would work, but there was nothing else I could do. You are modest, but do not try and use your arts against us, I warn you. We are not bound by it. Carl looked up at him, a shadow behind the lamplight, eyes glittering. I, I didn't even know the spell would work, he said again. Really? Now, where do we go? We will take you to the beginning of the maze, Argo said. Then you must lead the way. Carl thought hard. The map showed that there was a kind of big round room from which the maze started. There were drawings of statues all around its walls. I know it. That is where we must begin. Black rats scampered away from the light of the lantern Argo carried. Looking back, Carl could see a hundred pairs of little red eyes watching from the safety of the darkness. Sometimes... Tantalizingly, he could hear the noises of the streets above, the cries of beggars or food sellers, or the rattle of wagon wheels over cobbles. But soon Argo led him away from the main channel, down a rubble-strewn slope that dropped steeply through the living rock, down into the necropolis beneath the living city. Carl soon lost all track of time, he knew only that he was tired and hungry and frightened. And thirsty, too. For the tunnels that wound ever deeper into the rock were surprisingly dry, their floors coated with dust as fine as flour. With every moment, he was growing more and more afraid. And he was beginning to wish that he had never seen the book or tried to cheat von Stumpf of its price. Worst of all, he kept thinking that he heard footsteps in the darkness at his back, a steady, even pace that always stopped at a moment or two after he stopped to listen. Although dwarves still lived in certain parts of the underground tunnels, most were rumoured to be inhabited by mutants, and worse. Anything could be out there in the darkness. Anything at all and the knife he had taken from the dead thug in the tavern seemed little enough protection. But Argo ignored Carl's fears, and, rather than growing tired, the swordsmen seemed to gain strength as they descended through the tunnels. As if he were at home in them. As if the darkness and the weight of rock above, the weight of the whole city, were comfortably familiar. Certainly he knew the way to go, although that was strange too, now Carl thought about it. 
Hadn't Argo said that he was a stranger in the city? There was much more to the handsome young swordsman than met the eye. Most of the tunnels were narrow and low-ceilinged, and once or twice they had to stop and backtrack when they came upon a cave-in that had blocked the way forward. On one occasion they disturbed a colony of bats, which exploded around them in a fury of leather wings. Argo stood his ground unperturbed, but Carl huddled on the floor until the creatures were gone. On another they passed through a high, ruined chamber, fungi of every description growing over the wreckage of a wooden floor. Some toadstools were taller even than Argo, and bracket fungi stepped up the rock walls, glowing with a virulent green light. On the way across, Carl stepped on a round growth, which exploded in a cloud of spores that burned his nostrils like a dose of boiling hot pepper, making him sneeze uncontrollably. Argo, who didn't seem to be affected, had to wait until Carl could go on. As they ducked through the narrow crack that led out of the chamber, Carl heard stealthy padding footsteps, many of them, all around in the darkness and coming closer and closer. Argo raised the lantern, and Carl saw a hundred or more small shadowy figures creeping along high ledges, stepping down slopes of rock spree. None were taller than three feet, and all were naked but for loincloths, their warty green skin smeared with dirt, their wide fanged mouths grinning, their pointed ears rising above bald plates. They were armed with pointed staves and crude hammers or axes, a tribe of dwarf goblins. In the time it took Carl to realise what the creatures were and to draw out the knife he had taken from the dead ruffian, the first of the goblins scuttled towards Argo, who drew out his sword while still holding up the lantern. The creature hissed with fear and started back, even as Argo cut off their heads with a level sweep of his weapon. Others, higher up, began to pelt him with crude bombs stuffed with fungus spores. The poison dust fumed thickly around him, crackling in the flame of the lantern, but seemed not to affect him at all. He split one goblin almost in half, lopped off the arm of another, two jumped on his back, and he ran backwards and crushed them against the rock wall. Meanwhile, others were advancing on Carl. He managed to stick one with his knife, but it fell backwards, squealing in dismay, and pulled the haft of the knife from Carl's hand. Its companions grinned widely and raised their crude weapons higher, their slitted yellow eyes burning upon him. Carl backed away until the stone hit his back, watching with dismay as the lead goblin, no bigger than a child but with the face of a psychotic toad, raised its notched axe. Carl felt the tickling pressure between his eyes again, and before he knew what he was doing... He had thrown up his hands and garbled out the spell of binding he had read in the book. Instantly, every goblin in the chamber froze, 
One or two toppled off balance and fell stiffly to the floor. The pressure between Carl's eyes became a knife blade prying at his brain. He fell to his knees and felt blood gush from his nostrils, as rich and hot as fresh gravy. Argo calmly sheathed his sword and helped the apprentice to his feet. He ordered Carl to follow and set off amongst the frozen goblins as if nothing had happened. Carl staggered after him, so weak that he could hardly stand, but frightened of being left in the dark with the goblins, who surely wouldn't remain bound by magic for long. The front of his jerkin was soaked in his blood, and he couldn't seem to stop the flow completely, although he pinched the wings of his nostrils shut and later stuffed cobwebs up them. The price of magic. It was lucky there hadn't been any more goblins, and that they had been small too. Otherwise the magic needed to bind them might have burst his body like an overripe tomato. At last they reached a huge round chamber, tall statues standing around its walls. In the centre was a kind of altar, a stone table ringed with skulls, its surface cut with channels and bearing the torn remnants of some obscene sacrifice. An animal, Carl hoped, and didn't look too closely in case his worst fears were realised. On the far side of the chamber, a statue taller than all the rest was carved out of the living rock wall, half man, half beast, so tall that it was beheaded by darkness. Its right hand clutched a dozen snakes. Its left held a staring human head by the hair. Between its hoofed feet was the narrow entrance to the maze. Now you will lead us, Argo said, and handed Carl the lantern, his eyes glittering in the light. Through the red veils of exhaustion, Carl called up his memory of the map. It was still in his pocket, but he didn't dare draw it out. Argo could take it from him and leave him there, alone in the dark, prey to whatever was following them. The passageways of the maze were high and narrow, carved roughly out of granite and dark as obsidian. The rock absorbed the light of the lantern rather than reflecting it so that Carl had to find the way by only the feeblest of glows. Still, considering the circumstances, he thought that he was doing well enough, turning right and left and right again, avoiding passages that turned into steep, slippery slopes, dropping to water-filled shafts, slabs set in the floor that would trip the unwary into deep pits, a dozen sort of mechanical trap that couldn't be revealed by magic. Perhaps he was overconfident, or perhaps he was simply tired. In any event, he didn't realise his mistake until one of the paving stones gave slightly with a fatal click under his foot, like a bone breaking. There was an ominous rumbling above, and then a steel grip snatched him back as the massive weight slammed down, fitting the passage precisely. The wind of its falling blew Carl's hair back, the noise of its impact half deafened him. When Argo let go of his shoulder, he fell to his knees. You 
are a fool, Argo hissed in his ear. You can bet I'll try and do better, Carl said. The smooth stone of the deadweight was only inches from his tender, bloody nose. He was so shaken that he almost took out the map to make sure of the way. But he remembered that if he did, Argo would take it and leave him here in the dark, with his head cut off too, as like as not. Right and left, deeper into the bowels of the rock. The crushing weight of it seemed to press all life out of the stale black air. Carl had no room in his head for his fears or what he would do when they reached the treasure, no room for anything but remembering the route, right and left, deeper and deeper, until they reached the heart of the maze. It was a square chamber, with no way out but the passage which led into it, but dimly outlined by the glow of the lantern which Argo held, sketched in faded paint, was an ornate doorframe, the way to the treasure. Argo threw back his head and opened his mouth amazingly wide and let out a chattering, inhuman cry. Carl's heart froze. Striding out of one of the dark passageways behind them came three skeletons, yellow bones gleaming in the lantern light, feet clicking on the stone floor, eye sockets holding fell red glows. Each carried a notched, rusty sword, and one wore a golden helmet that an age ago had been cleft by a fearsome blow. Our brothers, Argo said, and whirled on Carl, his smooth, handsome face without expression. Now you will tell us the password. Password? You know it. Either you speak it now, or we will kill you, and have your corpse speak it for us, when it has rotted enough for the magic to take hold. Argo's breath smelt like crushed ants. His eyes glittered more fiercely than ever. Now, boy! There was a flare of blue light. Argo collapsed, and the three skeletons burst apart, bones crumbling to powder even before they hit the floor. Blinking, Carl saw the wizard step out of the shadows of the passageway, his white face grim. A strange place to find a bookseller's apprentice, and strange companions for him too, the wizard said. Though you have any idea how deeply you have meddled, my boy? Carl could only shake his head. Blue spots still floated in his vision. My apprentice was killed by this creature of chaos, the wizard said, nudging Argo's body with the steel-shod toe of his boot. He was bringing to me a map which led to a certain ancient treasure, treasure that in the wrong hands could do untold harm. He had hidden the map in a book of simple spells, the kind of thing a wizard's apprentice would carry, but still somehow he was found out. He managed to gain entrance to the city, but before I could come to his rescue, he was cornered at the Cliff of Sighs. He was a brave boy, 
and knew what would happen if the map were taken. So he threw himself from the cliff, and was torn to pieces by the trees far below. Before I could rescue the book, and before this creature could lay his hands upon it, one of the scavengers found it, and brought it to you. You knew I had the book, Carl said. Oh, yes. Never lie to a wizard, boy. Let that be your first lesson in your new life. I lent a little of my power to you, and waited until the creature found you. When you used the spells in the book, I was able to follow you by the traces of magic you left. Luckily enough for you, I arrived here just in time to use a simple, necromantic spell to unbind the magic which held the skeletons together. And Argo? Why was he... And then Carl understood. He was undead, too. That's why the spell of binding that, that I used on the goblins didn't affect him, and why the spore bombs didn't affect him either. Indeed. Some poor man whose corpse was revived through necromancy. The wizard pulled at his long black beard. And now you will want to see this treasure, no doubt. You may speak the password. I've had enough nosebleeds, thank you. The magic was laid down by the efforts of someone else long ago. The word merely releases it. The wizard held up the scrap of paper he'd somehow taken from Carl's pocket. If you won't say the word, then I will. So Carl said the word of unlocking, and a wooden door suddenly appeared in the sketched doorframe, and flew open with a thud that brought a cloud of dust from the ceiling. The first thing you have done right, the wizard said, and stepped forward. Carl followed, and then was struck from behind and thrown across the chamber. As he got to his hands and knees, he saw that Argo had thrown his cloak over the wizard's head, pinioning his arms and cutting off his breath at the same time. Without thinking, Carl picked up one of the rusty swords and swung at Argo's legs. Blunt though the blade was, it cut through to the bone. But instead of blood, hundreds of small insects gushed out of the wound. Argo wailed and let go of the wizard, tried to staunch the flow. Beetles were everywhere. Some had even taken to the air and were battering at the lantern, maddened by its light. Their wings glittered just like Argo's eyes. Argo fell to his knees. He seemed to be shrinking inside his skin. And then the wizard managed to gasp a spell, and the swordsman's clothes and skin flew apart, revealing a seething mass of beetles still clinging to the skeleton within. The wizard said another spell, and there was a sudden acrid smell in the chamber, and the beetles all stopped moving. A thousand brittle little corpses rained from the air. My fumigation spell, the wizard said, picking up his spectacles and examining them. 
Who would have thought I needed it against one of the undead? Those insects must have been acting as one organism. Using the skeleton and a false skin to give them human form. He always said, we, Carl ventured. Never I. Indeed, when I used the spell of unbinding, they must have been only temporarily discommoded and soon knit the bones back together again. Chaos spawns more kinds of evil than we can ever imagine. He set the spectacles on the end of his long nose. Now, let's go to the treasure. Bring the lantern. Together they stepped into the room beyond the door. Carl held up the lantern eagerly, and then groaned aloud. All around, on shelves carved into the rock, covered in dust yet still giving off that familiar sweet musty smell, were hundreds, thousands, of leather-bound books. Not all treasure glitters, the wizard said. This is the library of Fistoria Spratz, the greatest dwarf wizard in the last thousand years, preserved and hidden here by the last of his magic. You understand why the forces of evil should not gain hold of it. And now, my boy, I must prepare a teleportation spell that will take us and these marvellous books back to my rooms in the city above. It will take a little while. Time for you to consider if you would become my apprentice. He held up a beringed hand. Think carefully. I will say that you have what it takes. The door would not have opened if you did not have some trace of the power, nor would you have been able to channel the power I lent you so easily. You are a trifle vain and arrogant, it is true, but you are also brave, and more than a little lucky. Be quiet and think. But Carl did not have to think. He was ready with his answer long before the dark rock faded around him, and he found himself together with the wizard and stacks of dusty books in a bedroom overlooking the familiar dingy street where Otto von Stump's bookshop stood. Carl took a deep breath and said the one word that would unlock a long life of adventure. I think I must have obtained my copy of Ignorant Armies when I was about eleven years old. I have a distinct memory of reading Apprentice Luck and thinking, oh yes, this is a good one. And that impression stayed with me for the subsequent thirty-odd years. Imagine my surprise, therefore, coming back to it and finding that it is 
genuinely quite bad. A curiously bland and nothingy piece of fantasy writing. This raises the question of what it was I saw in this story as a young adolescent that has leached away in the intervening years. I suppose there may have been some appeal in having an adolescent protagonist. As I have observed before, a number of these stories choose to have a teenager as the protagonist, presumably as a result of who the authors perceived the core audience for Warhammer to be. This inclination towards Luke Skywalker-style hero's journey characters is not necessarily something that the Warhammer world copes very well with, as it is not necessarily a world that relishes growth and learning. I'm given to understand that the, the Conrad novels were written with this in mind, and they are undoubtedly the most dimly regarded of the longer works. As we have seen in past episodes, adolescent protagonists are at their most interesting, like with The Reavers and the Dead and Warp Stars, in stories when their attempts to grow and learn see them menaced by some unknowably powerful entity that means them ill in support of its own ends. One could contend that Argo, in this story, is a version of this, I suppose, but he doesn't really manage to cultivate that ominousness of those other stories as much as he seems to be some sort of advert for stranger danger. The story lacks a sense of place in any meaningful way. There's nothing in it that makes the story seem like it's set in Middenheim, apart from the fact that there are tunnels under the city, and what self-respecting fantasy city in the late 80s doesn't have that. The evil magic and what chaos is, is both muddled up and vague at once. The magic, although it's based off the vague system in the rule books, becomes even more generalised and untied to the setting. Although I quite like the nosebleeds as a way of indicating the expense of using magic. I remember in 1999 posting a photocopy of this story to Sweden to a guy I met in a Warhammer Fantasy roleplay email group because we had been discussing ways to fix the portrayal of magic in the game. But overall, the story feels loose. There's bad magic, but there's also feral goblins and there's skeletons. The, the wizard is foreign. I went with Kislev, it's a safe bet in this period. They had copies of something rotten in Kislev to sell. And he doesn't seem foreign because the protagonist doesn't know where the people are from. He seems generically foreign because the author doesn't seem interested in knowing where he's from himself. The Freedom in an Owned Universe article, that is our Bible for this series, observes that many sci-fi and fantasy authors viewed the Warhammer world with a degree of contempt because of its adolescent sensibilities, and whilst this book doesn't pander to those sensibilities with the rippling thews of a Conan-style story, I can't help but feel that its approach is low effort, as if such an audience couldn't consume a richer diet. This particularly seems like it might be the case when one considers that Sean Flynn was actually Paul McCauley, an award-winning hard sci-fi author, so it was not like this was someone incapable of writing to more complex themes than those this story throws up. So the question is, why did I like it when I was 11? 
I think part of it has to be the art. Having opted for the podcast medium for this show means I don't get to centre the art in these books as much as they sometimes deserve. But Martin McKellar's illustration in this one does an immense amount of work. A fearful-faced Carl wounds Argo, who contorts in pain as bugs gush from him, whilst a balding wizard with the facial features of a guy who might run a miniatures game shop in 1990 casts a spell in the background. I wonder if it is this picture that has stayed with me all these years. I look at it now and I see horror and vulnerability, mundanity and chaos all bundled in on one another. It's a great piece of Warhammer art, and it does a lot of the heavy lifting for the climax of the story itself. The other theory I have about why I liked it is that it was just a succession of bundled-together treats. You get to fight goblins, but there's a trap, and a mysterious wizard, and skeletons, and you learn spells and can cast them in emergencies, and there's a man who is all filled with bugs. None of this is very consistent, it doesn't really build either mood or theme, but what it does have is the feel of when you play Warlock of Firetop Mountain for the first time, and in one room there's goblins, and in another room there's dwarves, and in another place there's skeleton boat builders or, or a minotaur. They don't tie together, but they give you these little huffs of what fantasy settings have the potential to be, to see if you like them. And I did read Apprentice Luck, and I did like it, and 30 years later I, I still like fantasy writing now. So I guess I can't be too mad at you really, Apprentice Luck. Not when you've got that artwork to your name. On a wider level, this raises the question of what I do about the stories I consider to be genuinely bad as I go through these readings. It is my intent to read every piece of Warhammer short fiction written, or planned to be published, in this first foray of Games Workshop into publishing. It is as much a work of history as it is a work of audio drama and I'd say there are probably between three and five stories that I just don't have very much nice to say about. Although I would have counted Apprentice Luck in that section, and I've sort of talked myself around. Consequently, I am having to be a little careful with how scheduling happens from now on, as whilst I think it is interesting to read these stories that work less well and to think about why that might be the case, and to see if there is anything to be drawn from them, a run where I put them off in favour of real stonkers and then end up rounding off this project by doing Pug's Carnival followed by two or three other wonky potboilers in a row would probably be a bit of a depressing way to end this project. So I'm going to mix them in with the others over time. Seeing as I'm talking about planning, I should probably point out that it's my intent to read some of the novels too, the Jack Yeovil ones and Zaragoz for certain, but probably not the others. And then after that, to go into the stories that were scheduled to be in a third anthology, but all ended up being published elsewhere in the early Black Library era. But that's a long way off, and I'll talk about it more in the future. Suffice to say that it looks like I have resources for this project for a good long time to come, so long as I keep recording. Please feel free to comment on the show in the posts in the Old Hammer or Warhammer First Edition Facebook groups, or to leave a review if you are so inclined. 
Please tell friends if this is the type of thing that might interest them. You can also follow me on Twitter where I post at at Lewis Kerno about well, history, this podcast, RPGs, miniatures and Turnip28. Next time we are going back to Marienburg to see halfling detective Sam Warble again. But this time, in a story written not by the Caiaphas Kane author Sandy Mitchell who created him, but with mutant slan horse enthusiast starboat author Steve Baxter in The Song. <laughs>